regarded as, as, as a master landscape ecologist. And so when you have a healthy herd of elephants in, in their habitat, they, they work that landscape so that it, it maximizes biodiversity. This podcast is brought to you by Alda, where we connect you with some of your favorite sustainable brands. Be sure to check us out at alda.life. Or you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Alda Lifestyle. Oh, I almost forgot something. Protect your wild. Protect Your Wild podcast. I'm your host, Avinash, and I'm here with Colin Campbell and Ron Chandler. Yeah, so uh, Ron is our special guest today, and I knew him from uh, the University of Florida. Um, We met through a a class, and then he uh, sponsored um, Gators for Environmental Community Outreach, and from there has provided me with with so much mentorship and uh, help and, and so forth along the way. So yeah, thanks for uh, coming on, Ron. My pleasure. I'm good. It's good to be here, Colin. <laughs> you do great things. I appreciate that. Um, it's because of good role models, you know, <laughs> influences me. Um, so, yeah, to kick it off, I just want to talk about uh, your background a little bit and, and where, you know, your love and passion for the environment comes from. Mm, okay. Uh, yeah, we've talked about this a little bit, but... Uh, you know, so, uh, clearly my, my mom was my, like my field guide, mm-hmm. you know, that's that, that person that sends that special message to you that gives you confidence even when things go tough. But one of the ways she did that was, uh, when, so I was uh, born in Dallas, Texas, but we moved to New Smyrna and mm-hmm. lived in, in that small town for a time. And that made all the difference in the world. And she could tell that I just loved to try to figure out the fish and the shellfish and so forth that she gave me field guides and all sorts of books on it and, and clearly that you know that that uh, set it up for me you right. know, to love the environment so even when moving back to texas and all different places like you know i was convinced that if i was going to go to college i'd be an ecologist that was right. my first yeah first field that's awesome and she fed that passion it sounds like she did mm-hmm. she was thoughtful and noticed that my brother and i had different interests but still loved that kind of environment so she gave me she thought i love to read and i like to be able to figure things out and spend hours studying something and that was good for her too because she was raising us you know she was just her so right. to give me a book and sit down in front of a pond or whatever was a lot better than you know so many things that could have happened but yeah she was great <laughs> yeah that's awesome um i i kind of had that similar influence with tom morris that hopefully we'll have on where i think it does take somebody older like that 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 kind of feeds or encourages you right to to lean into your passion and work with yeah. it oh i think tom's been a field guide uh, in the sense that we're talking about and literally too you know in the field i think he's <laughs> right. been a field guide to a lot of people absolutely um and so uh correct me if i'm wrong you worked uh with like hydrology for a while yeah uh, so my first uh our first fields were in environmental sciences but especially lake and stream ecology hydrology uh limnology was, was the name of it and that's okay. more like a if you will, the, the freshwater version of an oceanographer. So we pay more mm. attention to the chemistry and the flow and distribution of contaminants and things like that, how it affects where fish and amphibians go and, you know, how it gets in the water and the groundwater, how it affects, you know, if you irrigate with that water, what happens to the crops, all those different things. Right, yeah, how they're all interconnected and so forth. Right, for several years. Then I got into the uh, into remote sensing for a time. I worked for technology companies that mm. made all these sensor systems that, I used later on in the field, and then uh, when I worked in the Everglades, I helped set up these remote monitoring stations. So they would, they were like submersible laptops. You know, they measure the chemistry and the flow of water, and then telemeter it out mm-hmm. by cell or by satellite or whatever. And did that for a time, and, and then then I got into academics later on. Right, right, and um, yeah, I want to want to talk about that as well. And um, but kind of first off, where does uh, Sci-fi come into play the the conservation initiative for the Asian elephant. Of course, we couldn't yeah. couldn't possibly leave that out. <laughs> and you know why? Why did a like a, a fit water and fish person? How did it come? To, <laughs> right. 
I got, he got involved with elephants. And <laughs> I've just, I've always loved elephants. Yeah. I've, you know, which, uh, which doesn't necessarily qualify me to do anything. But, <laughs> uh, I, uh, yeah. So I was uh, working in the Everglades. I was doing a lot of contract studies for water management districts and I had a cabin on Lake Santa Fe. I really liked what I was doing, but I was just had this nagging feeling that, that this was very, that was short term, mm -hmm. that this wouldn't last forever. And, when I sat and asked myself, it was after meditation, what would if I could do anything, what would I do? Mm -hmm. And I was sure that one, I would not continue uh, as a limnologist much longer. And the second was, I was sure that I would do something for elephants. It just that it just came to me that way. Wow! And so I thought, well, okay, <laughs> you know, with that, I better learn about elephants. So <laughs> right. I, started I started that process, went to Africa uh, for a couple months on a field trip, hiked there and got rides, and went park to park. When I came back to Florida. I just put out to the ether, you know, I said, here's who I am. I don't know anything about elephants, but I'm going to start something for them. And Christy Williams, that you know, right. uh, uh, he's now the head of uh, the uh, WWF's office in Burma. Oh, and wow. He, yeah, he sent, me a, he sent me a message back, and uh, he was one of a few people that responded. Of course, obviously, most people thought I was a kook, but he uh, <laughs> was one of a few people that responded. And he said, have you ever thought about Asian elephants? And I said, well, uh, who needs the most help? You know, I just, he said, well, Asian elephants, at that time, the, the plight of the Asian elephant was it was much worse than the African elephant. He, of course, the tide shifted terribly for African elephants mm. that, right now. But, you know, that will, you know, we'll, we'll keep working on that and that will stop too. Yeah. Uh, it just, it's a terrible shift. But at any rate, I said, that sounds good. And uh, he, so we talked, we uh, emailed back and forth and so on for about a year. And I worked on the art of, Basically, all those things I could do is to set up as a 501c3. Mm -hmm. Two years after that first conversation or the first email, I got him over to the States. I got a place on the beach, and we spent three days hammering out the articles of corporation, you know, the bylaws and all this kind of thing. And then I finished the 501c3 that year, which would be 2000. Okay. And we started Typhi in 2000. Nice. Wow. That's, yeah, yeah, the beach is the right place to do that. <laughs> you know, it is. If you just, yes, just kind of... Don't get too involved and too you know out into the water and get lost in it. But yeah, right. it's a great place to, to think and get things done. Absolutely. Where where in Africa did you go? Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. So I was in Zimbabwe, Zambia, and Botswana. Oh, nice. Mm. Yeah, I covered a lot of territory in a relatively short period of time. But what I I could you know I learned a lot about elephants. Of course, I knew nothing about them, so it was easy to learn something about them. But uh, what I did what I did learn is that there was uh, a real need to figure out uh, how to work with the indigenous and tribal people in the areas where elephants live, and that was actually something when we first started. So Christy, we were both pretty hardcore conservation biologist types, mm -hmm. and but two years or so into society, around two thousand two thousand three. I just I decided we need to change our model, and we had to, it had to be a human-centered approach to elephant protection. And that my thinking was, and that's this is what kind of how I might be jumping ahead of the, the you know the script. That's but, all good. Is that is that that's why I got into psychology? Is that it? It just struck me that if we don't attend to the things that are happening terribly for people, we'll not ever actually be able to develop a sustainable model. Right. You know, because people don't. Most people, there's a few people, sociopaths, wake up in the morning and decide they're going to do terrible harm to elephants or to people, right? Yeah. Most people don't. Right. And so something, something's terribly happening for elephants, uh, for example. Something's happening really badly for the people there. And right. so that's what got me thinking of, and Colin knows the model, the five facets of sustainability that I use. So at the center of it, or the nucleus, is human dignity. Mm -hmm. And then the other elements are water, food, energy, commerce, biodiversity, and so forth, sort of arranged you know, as elements of this molecule. And uh, if no matter what we're doing is we focus on improving human dignity, we're, we're working with water, food, energy, whatever it is, we're going to likely be more successful at right. ultimate alpha conservation thing, you know. Yeah, I think that is something that probably often gets overlooked in, in these uh, efforts to help third world countries and, and whatever the the cause might be is, is looking and, and talking with and, um, actually collaborating with the indigenous people or, or those that are closest to the problem. Exactly, Colin. Yeah. And there isn't any way to know without, you know, so our approach is that, for example, Kashmir is my number one colleague in India. Now that's Christie's wife. Uh, mm -hmm. Christie's not, obviously, as I mentioned, he isn't in India anymore. He has his, he has, he's so busy. Yeah, but, <laughs> 
So Cashmere, you know, running WWF in, in Myanmar, Burma, you know, he's, he's a busy that way. But so Cashmere is the point person. She's our lead scientist. But the, our approach is to is to respond to the indigenous or tribal people when they reach out to sit with them, uh, first of all, understand what they think is or see as a problem and then ask them how they would resolve it. And then if, if after knowing that we feel like we can help then we start working with them, hmm. we don't assume that, Oh, well, the, you know, here's what's happening with the elephants. We're not, <laughs> well, you know, the classic thing is some, some white guy flies over from the States and starts telling people what to do. and does a study and then leaves and nothing's better or it's worse. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, it spends a lot of money and doesn't help a whole lot of people or or elephants for that matter. Exactly the community, the human centered approach to conservation, elephants, whatever food, water, and that is is a slower process, but it's actually less expensive and almost always more effective. Right, right. It takes more time, you know. So yeah, um, I guess now now that we're on the kind of topic of Saifi in India. Um, Right now, the the main project that's going on is protecting the Garo Hills, right? Right, right. And uh, turning that into the is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Exactly, Colin. We started the inscription process, which is just the the application to to have it. It's a huge uh, effort. That's a really mm-hmm. large document that gets bigger and bigger as it goes through the channels, and it eventually goes to UNESCO in Paris. Oh, okay. Be, to be vetted, you know, so that that's when we start the proof of claim, so to speak. But yeah, we're going for dual status, cultural and environmental. So we're right. uh, focusing on the, the Garo people as people are endangered. And, and so the entire landscape is endangered, number one, by coal mining interests. Mm. And so they, uh, there's a, there's a, uh, there was a lot of pressure to basically uh, surface mine, strip mine all of the Garo Hills. This is a place the size of Vermont, you know, roughly. Jeez. And with, where the, where those interests have gone into, like for Elitham, to the state to the north, it, it looks like something out of a, a Mad Max movie. I mean, it's absolutely it's devastated. Oh, devastated. There's no, there's no life. There's no water. Uh, you, it's the, the sky is black, twenty four hours a day. It soot settles on the house. You know, I mean, you just can't believe how much uh, environmental degradation takes place through surface mining, coal mining like that. And the, and the Garo Hills was slated for that this kind of operation before there's a there's a, a, a group in there's a part of Parliament called the Green Tribunal mm. and they are really effective and they got a moratorium set up in Megalia uh, you know in the Garo Hills in this whole the Balpakram no crack uh, the landscapes of the Garo Hills mm-hmm. and that gave us this opportunity to go in the Garo people actually reached out to Kashmir like Kashmir was a was doing uh, what's called wildlife transects, doing them with camera traps that the, the SIFI funded, and we're funding that research. Because in 1990, I think, that, that far back, Christie did the very first biological transects of the Garo Hills by any scientist, and he did it on foot. Oh, jeez. No, he wrote, yeah, and he wrote this report, and, and, and it, uh, you know, the forest office looked at it, UNESCO looked at it, people looked at it and said, God, great report, put it on a shelf and did nothing. And so when we finished working in Jaipur, which is a big conservation area in Assam, uh, Kashmir said she was going to she was going to make something happen in the Garo Hills to protect it. Right. While she was doing these biological transects over about three years, I think we, we set out like 400 or something sites. I mean, that's where we documented there's one of the uh, five largest herds of Asian elephants left in the world are there. Jeez. It has the greatest diversity of wildcats anywhere in the world. I mean, it, you know, it also, it probably has a, a groundwater system that uh, is many times larger than the Floridan, for example. I mean, wow. this is a, it, the rivers leave Megali as waterfalls. I mean, it just keeps on going, you know, the, the primary, so the forests in the, in the Garo Hills, the valleys of the Garo Hills are primary forests that have never been altered by human hands. And yet it's going to get destroyed outright pretty much, or, or the aim was to. Yeah, Dude, exactly. That's, that's yeah. unbelievable. So with all those images from the camera traps, we were able to document the things that Christie speculated on because he saw the tracks of all these different cats, but he didn't get enough images, you know, so that right. the camera did that. Uh, and with while she was there, the Garo people, there's 17 villages, people in these villages reached out to her and said, we understand that the state is going to take us off of our land. The Gar people actually own that land. It's their land. Mm-hmm. Take us off the land and move us into what usually happens is we're horrible block houses on the outskirts of the city or something like that. 
and they say that we don't have a choice. Kashmir messaged me and said, "Do you think we can? You know, do you think we can ramp up and get involved?" I said, "We have to try." You know, yeah. that's, that's all there is to it. And so that's two years ago. Like, yeah, fifteen. Well, over two years ago that we started the process, and it's starting to slowly move its way out of some of the bureaucratic channels towards uh, Shillong, the capital, where it'll get more consideration, and then we'll start working on. It. We have we have some more field work to do, especially along the lines of water quality. Mm-hmm. You know fisheries and that we have really uh, we i think we have the cultural information about the garb because they've been hugely helpful at telling us about how they uh, perceive the landscape we did a big study during the elephant reserve workshop of participatory action research uh, approach to understanding what they mean when they say help us save our land right and uh, yeah and so they that we did we were able to get that so we, i think we have the culture we definitely have the endangered species large mammals birds Small mammals, but probably the water, the aquatic ecology part of it's the weakest spot. We'll have to beef that up, and I know uh, the UNESCO and uh, Paris will ask about it. Once we get that done, then when it's over in Paris, then we're working long and hard on it, and I, I feel certain we'll be successful. We just got to get it out of India, you know, and into right, uh, right Paris. into the hands of the right, exactly. Right. So, um, how? Kind of does their view of the land differ than our own of the like the Gara people? Oh, that's that's a good question, uh, and it was a real eye opener. So, even though uh, it, with you know with developing this field sustainability psychology, I think that I I, I really do my best to understand the the uh, if you will the humanistic mm-hmm. aspects of something. Uh, I'm always surprised though because quite well, okay, I have two biases. One, I'm Western, right? You know, so constantly have to work about on that. And the other is that I, you know, my training in science, twenty five ish years, was in the physical sciences. Right. You know, environmental like so, an ecological, uh, a typical conservation model is still sort of a program that's running in my head, right. if you will. And so, but at any rate, when they after the we did the we had a workshop or we had a summit, and we got the Garo to approve uh, the. To allow the Forest Service to establish the Garo Hills, uh, an elephant reserve within the Garo Hills, the larger landscape. That was step number one. Step number two was to pitch the UNESCO World Heritage Site as the best way to protect their land and you know them as people and as the wildlife. Mm-hmm. So uh, what we did is we organized into groups. This will sound familiar to you from Fast to Sustainability. We got them into groups, and I had a translator for their language. So there was a Garo, somebody spoke Garos, and someone spoke Hindi because they mixed their languages some. Hmm. And there were two translators, and I floated around these groups. So there were a group about 20 or so Garo apiece. There were 300 uh, Garo people there. All the village elders were there. And they, at the end of that one evening, they said, well, the number one thing that they're telling us is to save the land. And I said, well, and I immediately thought, well, you know, as a conservation ecologist or been trained in that way, we think about land like landscape. Right. It's territory, right, habitat, things like this. And I thought, okay, we need to make sure we understand this because as we go forward, and we, you know, we want to make sure that we're committing ourselves to taking the path that they think is the best path that they'll buy into and they'll stay with us and so on. Mm-hmm. Turns out that we went through rounds again and land meant their soul. It meant so the, the landscape to them, the Garo Hills actually they believe that they that the gods created them out of all the elements of the of earth. And when they passed their return through the valley, through the valley of the spirits, that's the deepest gorge. Mm-hmm. And in that process, they're reconstituted into the Garo Hills that which is the universe. Wow. Yeah. So they weren't asking us just to save the landscape, you know, like a park or something. They right. were they're basically telling us that they know if they lose that land, they lose their souls. Right. They lose their, their very identity is like still that exactly. that's what's really impressive, I guess, about how kind of they've held or or maintained those those ways is that it's the land is still like intertwined in their very like identity and community and, and soul, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, you and I, and, and I, I know that uh, Avanesh, you know, we think this way too about treading lightly on earth and we do we do what we can. It isn't something that, uh, it is almost like a genetic spiritual something for them. It, there's no way they can ever disregard the uh, uh, their presence on earth and what earth does for them, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, we can roll up our window and turn on the air conditioner and we can, you know, forget about it for a little bit, so to speak. It's just... Right. Uh, that's probably a silly analogy, but it's uh, nevertheless they they 
they just live it every day, every second of every day. Right. Yeah. We. I mean, like you said, the Western bias. We generally become entirely detached almost from our environment we have to make a a choice to get out there and experience it if we want to but so many people choose not to for some reason or another and uh, i think that's definitely part of what's led to kind of our um the the general kind of western viewpoint that was you know it's here for our taking and our use and our you know exploitation but luckily there's there's people like yourself and, and others who are now kind of turning back on on that and building the awareness and, and the movement around sustainability as a whole. Yeah, well, thanks. And that, you know, this so the, the conversation that we're having about how they perceive the landscape, you know, and everything is really kind of at the, at the heart of the psychology of sustainability. Right. You know, you know, so we don't use psychology to manipulate their behavior. You know, my what I'm doing with sustainability psychology is employing psychology to understand the individual and societal experience of of sustainability. You know, so what is the thinking that's going on that has us take a position about ourselves and about others? You know, like intra and interpersonal ecologies, and then how does this relate to how we think about the planet and whether we do something about about it or not? Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are there are there any uh, like kind of interesting experiences or stories that you have from from all of your travels through India and spending time yeah. over there? <laughs> there you mentioned. Uh, yeah, well, I will. There's some that I can't tell you. you know, because, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, but uh, they're only because they you know it's yeah yeah. There's a it isn't the safest place. Some places are not the safest place. Sure. You know. Of course. And so I'll just say this one thing that there's a whole host of experiences around the reason why we often have armed guards with us when we go to the furthest out parts of, of uh, some of these places. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. Uh, but when I start study abroad, I will not take students there. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> True. <not a> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that you know, uh, one of the I was I saw your question and I thought about that in certain you know like uh, individual experiences came up. But one thing in particular that uh, you know when people say, "What's it like to work in India?" They, they'll say, "I've always wanted to go to India," or a few years ago I went on a spiritual you know uh, quest you know to India, went to an ashram and that and. And, the, and they said that they loved it and they even thought about moving there. So they asked, what is it like to, to work there? They said, well, the thing that, that I find about India is fascinating overall is that, you know, so all of human experience is arranged on continuum, right? There's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, greed and generosity, you know, fear and courage, you know, love and hate, you know, all these different things that just make up this, you know, this web of our experience. Well, everything about the human experience is happening full out in India. <laughs> the very worst and the very best and everything in between. And, wow. it, and it's, you know, there's over a billion people there. Right. It, it, it's just, but what's fascinating is you can be in a built environment uh, and there's really some amazing things there too, but they're often really crowded. There's a tremendous amount of poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's for our, from a Western perspective, it doesn't seem well organized. The driving is, you know, they're all over the place. And, right. you know, why there's even traffic, traffic guard, I have no idea because they don't <laughs> seem to do anything. But no matter, it, it seems like seems like some sort of organized chaos, you know. Yeah. But then you, when you, when, in the wilderness in India, two hours, 12 hours away, so the travel takes a really long time on the road. Uh, well, because the roads are usually pretty poor, especially yeah. when you get into conservation areas, you know. But it can be in a landscape, uh, some like say a day later after leaving any one of the cities, and just cannot believe. It, it's almost like you 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 jump, you got in a spaceship and went to another planet. It, it, it's just unbelievable how beautiful the, some of the wilderness is around there, and the wild and the wildlife is just you know it's just incredible. You can't believe that you're in a place. A few hours ago, or half a day ago, where you know your eyes and no, your nose bled from all the diesel soot, and your eyes burned, and you know it, you know there were so many people around, and so many people with so so many terrible things happening to them, right? Through poverty, but it's it really is, and yet there's they're generally speaking the most generous people I've ever met. You know, mm-hmm. it's uh, most of the people have a fraction of what you and I consider to be a baseline for. A quality of life, and they're so generous. And they're right. so we call in psychology allocentric. So that means they, they, uh, they, they're collectivists. That's another way to say it. They, they recognize the importance of their life and what they need. But at any given time, other people have that have a higher need because they are in need. 
So there's this there's this community collectivist sharing mentality. Right. That they have. Yeah. But that's one of the things that you just can't get over when you're over there in India. You think you can be there. You can watch elephants walk by for hours. You know, you can see where a tiger scratched, used a tree for a scratching post. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're three inch cuts in the tree for, you know, eight feet up. <laughs> and you say, wow, all we have is a field knife. This is, this is really. <laughs> but you can see that. And then you can, you know, if you need to go get supplies or something, you go back into a smaller city or a big town. And you think it's just. It's really will bend your mind, right? So, yeah, so were the just, were the armed guards more for the people or for the animals? Oh no, they're yeah, they're to protect us from people. <laughs> people, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, There's yeah. That, there, there are insurgents in some places in northern India, especially on borders of some other areas. That they're called insurgents. They're really just gangs of well armed and often well funded thugs. Jeez. And, and, you know, they, they traffic women and children if they can. They traffic drugs. They, they poach. You know, they tra- – they, it's just, you know, they're organized, lawless people. Right. And they, you know, they can be really dangerous, much more so than anything that lives naturally. There. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, people are way more unpredictable, it seems like. Animals <laughs> you can study and understand. People are all over the place. Right, right. <laughs> they, yeah, uh, that's, that's what makes psychology so fascinating and also so challenging. Yeah, you yeah. Know, when you're measuring water chemistry, there's there's an answer. How much is there? <laughs> you got it to the nanogram, right? You just can't do that with people. Right, right. Um, so I guess we'll transition over to uh, testing you on some two the two truths and a lie section here. See if you <laughs> yeah, can can that. detect uh, which which of the three is uh, is made up. Okay. Do you want me to start, Colin? Or yeah, yeah, start? you can you can kick it off. All right, sweet. All right, I'll start. Um, so for your first three facts, uh, number one, facts. Around seventy percent of industrial waste is dumped into bodies of water. Number two, sixty-five percent of Florida's wetlands have been repurposed slash developed for our use, and we've lost around half. Number three is Texas is the second biggest water polluter in the country, dumping 16.5 million pounds of toxic waste into the waterways. And do you want me to respond to all of those? Or? Um, you can... uh, figure out which one is not true. Yeah, kind of, if yeah. you need any repeated to, you can kind of walk us through your, uh, your reasoning. Or... Well, let's see. Uh, I'm pretty sure that the it might, we might actually have, uh, have destroyed more than that percentage of wetlands in Florida, but I would say mm. that that would be a minimum. Really? Okay. And let's uh, let's see. The, what was the first one again? Seventy uh, percent of industrial waste is dumped into bodies of water. I wouldn't know if that's true or not. Uh, I know that uh, you know hazardous. It depends on what kind of industrial waste, but if it isn't. Uh, radioactive waste and most of it is treated and discharged to surface water i don't know if 70 percent or not is accurate but then texas being the biggest polluter you know i'm from texas so and i i you know i worked as an ecologist there for many years and i would have to say they're awful but then you know there's a lot of <laughs> it could always be worse well yeah. it makes me think that's probably accurate because of all the refineries uh, in texas and all the petrochemical waste in it and all of that is See, I'll put this in quotes, treated and then discharged to the Gulf of Mexico or to the rivers that flow to it. Uh, treat, yeah, treated. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, treated is it was an interesting. Uh, yeah, I have a lot of stories about that too, but I won't bore you with, <laughs> you know, with the results of treated industrial waste. Yeah, crazy. So which one? Which one am I wrong on? Um. um oh, yeah, go. yeah. The from from what I found at least. Uh, Florida has lost 44% of our wetlands, so just about half. Um, so I guess, thankfully, it's it's not on the, the other side of that scale. And yeah. uh, hopefully there will be more done to, to conserve, uh, especially the Everglades, and, and kind of bolster that back up. I know there have been yeah. a lot of big efforts there lately. There will have. You know, that's what I was thinking, because when I worked in Everglades, agricultural area, and also the Everglades proper, Mm-hmm. You know, they, so that, that they had, I guess it was before they started that purchasing like the sugarcane fields and so forth, that they had lost 50% of the Everglades alone. Jeez. You know, that, that was a, a vast part. 
Right. And, uh, there was an argument too about what's qualified, what's classified and qualifies as a wetland. And so a lot of the wetlands that were that were marked as wetlands back then. So my you know my experience is is the dated right. Were uh, like if it was. I can't remember. It seemed like it was five or ten. Maybe I think it was ten acres. If it was ten acres or less, it was declassified as a wetland. So they didn't. <laughs> That's so the an interesting workaround. <laughs> yeah, the percentage of wetlands that were lost changed because suddenly all well, so many of the smaller wetlands that were adjacent to the streams were just were uh, decided not they weren't really wetlands after all. That's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those manipulations that they'll do of. Uh, how they define things it's it's like how they'll change the definition of unemployed like every five years so that they can manipulate those stats it's unreal yeah yeah no it is but uh, yeah thanks that was fun <laughs> um all right round two uh con can go so we'll have, we'll have, yeah three rounds here uh here's yeah. our second um the first fact we have around 700 million people uh globally drink contaminated water um second aquatic animals have faced an estimated <laughs> extinction rate that's five times more than that of terrestrial animals and lastly indiana has the cleanest least polluted water in the united states i can't believe the last one <laughs> no <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I hope that's true, but I just can't believe that. Have you been there? I, I've never been. Is that <laughs> where, is Cleveland in Indiana? What? Is Cleveland in Indiana? Where is Ohio. Ohio, that's right, okay. Yeah. But anyway, so I'll, well, there's my answer for the last one. <laughs> you can, I don't know, I didn't hear, I didn't hear a, yeah. a red beat go off, so I, maybe that was, that was okay. All right, the, <laughs> So as far as like loss of terrestrial versus aquatic species, you know, I, uh, so I was just reading something when they start, uh, like, well, E.O. Wilson has written about this recently about how we, when we look at endangered species, I realize we have to have something we, we have to measure a little bit easier, but the rate of, the rate of, of species on the microscopic scale of extinction is, is alarming. Mm. So we're really not sure about, about all the species, right? But uh, I think some of the things that they're finding now in the ocean would indicate that the that aquatic animals are dying off faster than than terrestrial animals, especially with the you know reef bleaching and, right. and CO two concentrations, you know, acidifying the you know that, and then also the heat that's being captured at depth. It, hmm, uh, that I haven't heard about. Well, so that you know that one of the concerns when they run the climate change models is that. Uh, again, one of the, the about one of the most consistent things about the models that they are running, and this is this I can talk about this just very superficially, right? This is not my field, mm -hmm. but just that each time they run them with more data, the the time span of the manifestation of the worst of outcomes gets shorter, not longer. So the models are actually tell, <laughs> telling us what's happening is just that they they're they have been overestimating how much longer we have till you know all, all hell breaks loose, but. One of the things that they did not realize is that there's so much methane entrained at the bottom of the ocean that's called frozen. You've heard about that. Well, as the ocean stores, it, it captures heat. And that, that heat stores up within the ocean, and eventually it's, it's begun to warm the, the, the depths of the ocean. So water at depth, which is normally very cool, that can absorb this heat. Mm -hmm. When it overturns, it so it releases will, the methane. You know, that's... It'll turn it over and it'll discharge that methane into the atmosphere. Jeez. I mean, all of these things I think that we're finding out and we're realizing that, well, just not too long ago, uh, I just was read, uh, reading or saw something, maybe it was on Facebook, where they found refuse, human refuse, you know, spam, Budweiser cans, you know, plastic trash at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. Jeez. The deepest place on earth. And so, you know, I think there are a lot, of, I would, so I would have to say that, that uh, just on that, and thinking about how much more, especially it's being done in some places in the world to conserve, uh, you know, whole areas, uh, whole provinces, if you will, of a, of a terrestrial habitat, mm -hmm. that, that we are losing more aquatic animals. I don't know if it's five times, but, uh, you know, you know, because you have the answer right there. <laughs> <laughs> now, what was the other one? I'm sorry, I'm rambling on about and, uh, it. No, that was really interesting. I, uh, the, the cycle is, is frightening, to say the least. <laughs> 
Uh, what was the last one you got? Yeah, Indiana. Oh, uh, Indiana has the cleanest, least polluted water in the United States. That's the one. The that is false. For sure. I think they're yeah. one of the worst. Um, yeah. You immediately <laughs> sniffed that one out. <laughs> yeah, I was like, ooh. <laughs> Quick. Yeah. yeah. The, the first one was the 700 million are drinking contaminated water. And that's, um, yeah, I wouldn't even be surprised if it were more than that, especially given the amount, what, within uh, India alone, and there's like a billion people, right? Well, yeah, so half the people in India are exposed to all, uh, envir- you know, environmental hazards, and, and they and clean and clean water, especially potable water, is basically non-existent. Jeez. And so if that, there's, part, there's that number there anyway. Wow. Well, you know, I I got typhoid drinking water once, you know, so I accidentally drank some water that was actually potable water, and I, I, I mixed up whether or not it was the water that we boiled and filtered and boiled or it wasn't, and I, it was the middle of the night, you know, I just was thirsty, drank a glass of water, and three days later, I was in a field hospital on an IV. Jeez. You probably don't want to, you probably don't want to keep that in the recording. That's, <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, it's... Um... I think part of the the risks that you take and and you know doing work in areas like like India that that are uh, that need it the most really you kind of have yeah, to accept some of those dangers. Mm-hmm. So that that statistic then or that uh, data point is is accurate. Is seven hundred million people drinking contaminated water? It seems like it would be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. We yeah, you, you got that Indiana one immediately. That was pretty funny. <laughs> Um. Uh, so the last one's like super easy. Um, <laughs> here are the three facts. Uh, first fact is adult elephants can't jump. The second fact is <laughs> elephants can drink up to forty liters of water per day. Yes. And then the third fact is Asian elephants drink more water than African elephants. And it depends on where they are, but generally that's true. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so the, uh, well, the, so the, you know, that they, they look at African elephants, for example, and where they, they live. So the, the desert elephant, elephant you see, where you see more of often enough, Sub Saharan Africa, with the exception of Kenya and Tanzania, you know, they do not have access to much water. So that when they do get water, they drink as much as any other elephant, but on a, on a daily basis, Generally, with the exception of southern India, elephants have usually can't get to water more Asian elephants can than African elephants. Of course, you know, then I'm, I'm not kind of not ignoring the elephants that are in the, the forested areas, uh, the, you know, the jungles and that. But uh, adult, uh, adult, uh, you say male elephants or? Or, yeah, adult elephants. They can't, they can't actually jump. They can stand on their hind legs. <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> right. Yeah, but they can't jump. Trying you know, to jump a semi truck. <laughs> It's pretty amazing to watch them stand on their hind legs and reach up. They can, you know, take pretty much anything they want from three feet in the air. Jeez. Crazy. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah. I haven't had any personal experiences around elephants yet. Uh, maybe, maybe some travels in the future. I can get out, get out in the wild and sure. <laughs> have some interesting experiences. Sure, sure. Um. I've only had uh, African elephant experiences, but that's it. Yeah. 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 Where was that? Uh, in South Africa. I smell like like I really liked uh, going to Kruger National Park. I don't know if you've heard of it, but um, I saw elephants there. And then also I went to Cape Town, and there's an elephant farm there. Uh, and I got to ride on top one, so that was kind of interesting. Uh, the thing that caught me off guard was uh, the smell. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh wow, elephants smell!" <laughs> but you know, it was, it was a fun experience. Uh, I know I didn't. <clears throat> I I didn't know if uh, it hurts the elephant if you rode on top of it. Um, so I, I don't know. At the time, I was like young. So well, if you ride like so, you know the mahout. That's the person that you know guides them. If you ride where the mahout rides, then it doesn't it doesn't hurt them. Uh, you know, okay. we just we just weigh. You know, we're we're our weight is nominal compared to their weight, and their necks extraordinarily strong. So sitting there, it's like it's like you know, we as like a human being putting a, a little one on our shoulders. Mm-hmm. You know, it's they notice the weight, but it's really nothing, right? A little toddler on our shoulders is nothing. We that's how we walk. We also can they can keep up with us, but 
if you sit, if you, you know, like the how does the platforms that sit on their back, mm. those are very damaging to the elephant. Right. And it's too much weight in their spine. And yeah. So elephants have these uh, these prostheses that that extend off of their their spine. They're like points, mm-hmm. and of course they have muscle tissue around it. But when you put even with a, a pad on there, you put a platform on top of that with with five to fifteen people or whatever, and that's all pressing down on the elephant's spine that Jeez. way. It, it, it's really it really is amazing how uh, how uh, resilient they are to be able to just endure that. I mean, part of it is they're remarkably intelligent. They, I think that they manage to psychologically cope, but right. they're very, very strong, but it's really harmful to ride, ride them. Yeah. yeah. I think we didn't, we didn't ride on a platform or anything. We rode uh, bareback on like the back of the elephant. Um, so they just put a towel on his back and they're like, all right, hop on. I'm like, okay. <laughs> That's crazy. I saw there used to be, or at least in like pictures, did there used to be like war elephants or was that actually a thing? There was, yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. They would, arm, they would ride them into, into battle with arm, armor from, on the front of them. And, and then the, the, they, the, so the soldiers would be on top and, and like a, like a, a fortified powder, mm-hmm. you know, and would shoot, you know, from, from on top of the elephant. That's so wild. Yeah. Wow. It is wild. It's very- that's that's like right out of Lord of the Rings. That's <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> that's probably where they got it. Right. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah. Sweet. Um the made up one I actually made up was elephants could uh Asian elephants could drink more water than African elephants. But really? I think that might actually be a fact. <laughs> it sounds like <laughs> <laughs> Where I think so. <laughs> we just yeah. know that Yan isn't the cleanest state. Mm. <laughs> That's something we don't. Sweet. Uh, so that causes a win, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get corrected by the the true expert. <clears throat> um. Yeah, it's a, I actually want to since we didn't talk about. It, I know there's lots of just incredible facts about elephants but um i think it's important to kind of and it's not in the script or anything just to hit home on basically why why your work with syphy is so important and why elephants are so important to their environment like as a keystone species so i was wondering if you could kind of speak to the impact that they have on on their you know the ecosystem that they're in and uh what what basically makes these these creatures worth protecting okay sure uh, well, as as the keystone species, you know their response to their they're regarded as 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 a master landscape ecologist. And so when you have a healthy herd of elephants in in their habitat, they they work that landscape so that it it maximizes biodiversity. Uh, the studies that have, the research that's been done on areas of Thailand and India where elephants used to be, and then where elephants still are, and found a remarkable reduction in biodiversity with the removal of elephants poaching or mining or, or something that's taken them out of that. Of course, mining reduces the biodiversity completely. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, but so for example, you know, we you, you've helped with this event a few times. It's the World Elephant Day celebration, and that's a celebration of the first time, and that program's continued. The Thai government has released elephants that are in sanctuaries that were rescued from logging and mining and things like that, and they've released them into the wild areas again. Mm. And it's been remarkably successful. The elephants are having calves again, and the biodiversity in the forest in, in the forested areas where they're released is increasing every year. Wow. And so, well, yeah. Uh, well, here's an example. When I, when I was working in Thailand, we were in the uh, Kanker Chan, which is a huge conservation area, kind of central part of Thailand, and we were coming back because we were we needed to get fuel and food and everything before we went out for several days. On on the way out, we just went through a low. It was dry season. We went through a low water crossing uh, that was pretty wide. It was very very densely forested. And then we went on to the park. On the way back, uh, we we crossed it again. So this would be from at that point till we got to a small uh, to a village where we could get what we needed and went back to that across that low water crossing was probably five hours total time. Mm-hmm. When we were going back into the park that or real early that next morning, there the that wa- low water crossing looked like a bomb had hit it. <laughs> I mean, the, there were trees down, you know, all sorts of trees down with mud everywhere. And we stopped and uh, and so a supo the uh, uh, he was with WWF at the time was was the guy that was leading the project. We got out and we walked downstream about oh I don't know uh, fifty meters or so. 
into this area where I had heard about and seen pictures about elephants digging lakes, but I had not actually seen it firsthand. And the el- a herd of elephants had came, had came, they were going down the watershed, or the, uh, water, the creek bottom, mm-hmm. and the, they, they could smell water like 10 feet below the surface. And they can also smell the minerals they need, calcium, iron, and so forth. They can smell the soil types that they need to eat to keep their nutrient levels up. Anyway, they pushed the trees down, and they dug a pond that was about uh, – I think there might be pictures on my Facebook page, but they dug a pond that was about, uh, oh, I don't know, um, say 40 meters across, and it was longer since it was in the creek, by I mean half again longer than that and probably about uh, uh, two meters deep. So this is roughly something that's, you know, it's really long, really shallow, but it's like six feet deep. And they dug this within five or six hours. <laughs> and all the trees out, what was fascinating is they dug down and got mm-hmm. the water. All the water started seeping, you know how it does from the banks. Mm-hmm. It seeping in and made it, it was already about uh, six inches or, or so deep. And it was mm-hmm. starting to fill in. You could see where amphibians and reptiles had, had made it in there. You could see the tracks of their tails and their feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were two dozen species you could tell by the, the wading birds, the birds that had come in by the, the different shapes of their feet. Uh, you, there were other small animals that you could that were flushed away when we came in. They were chewing on the, on the roots of the trees, and elephants ate the leaves off the trees, of course, but then all these other animals were eating other parts of the trees. It went from the dry season where everybody's dying of thirst to an aquatic oasis like in five hours. That's an example of what, what they do. And yeah. they don't they don't knock trees down willy nilly, you know, that's some of the mythology about elephants is they're dangerous to the forest. That's that's how they work the forest. They'll push trees down that's and then every creature that's a herbivore eats and then it opens a field and then there are grasses and shrubs and things that keep the ecology going. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, they're amazing. They really are. From a like from a human centered perspective, I mean, if somebody doesn't care at all about the ecology, which it's hard for us to believe, but we know that some people don't. Uh, you know, elephants have fifty three copies of of a gene that is responsible for uh, preventing cancer. We have two of that that gene. Jeez. Uh, so ele- elephants uh, could potentially could have hold the secret to not curing cancer but preventing it in mammals. You know? Right. And then also there's some research on, you know, their, their cognition is phenomenal. They, the, the, you know, their processing ability is, is more like a mainframe compared to ours. I mean, it's, they have, it's the 10,000 times the processing ability that we have. And complexity of language and data collection and, you know, the, 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 the saying that elephants never forget, they probably never forget. And they also all remember everything else that any other elephants ever told them. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. it's a species we should look up to for sure. Having a positive yeah. impact on, you know, those around you in addition to just their intellect, you know. Mm-hmm. And their social structure is remarkable. I mean, if we want to look at models for a sustainable society, we needn't look any further than the elephant. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I'm I'm definitely glad I put that out there, and <laughs> I, I I think there's probably a lot of people that that just didn't didn't quite realize that they're more than just a cute you know big-eared like lovable giant i guess yeah right yeah they really are they really are amazing uh yesterday we'll come up on the fourth year of the world elephant day celebration the first one ever in florida was the one that sifi sponsored Mm -hmm. i think there's now two or, or three more but uh it's it will be the seventh or eighth year that that they've had that reintroduction program. So that's really encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so to, I guess, wrap it up a little bit, there's a, a kind of couple questions that we like to generally ask everyone and, and get your, you know, uh, take on, uh, especially with your background and everything. The, the first thing that I'll ask is, uh, how would you describe kind of sustainability or define it to, you know, a toddler or a three-year-old in, in simplest terms? Wow. <laughs> I haven't thought about that. Uh, in simplest terms, uh, there would be something like this. So the objective, of course, I wouldn't use the word objective, but the, the reason why we want to be sustainable is because we want to have everyone have a safe home. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's actually not a... 
a perspective or a kind of point that I thought about yet. But yeah, tying things back to human dignity, that makes yeah. total sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sweet. Uh, the other question we have is, uh, do you have a small uh, sustainability tip for you know everyday people that they can implement in their lives? Oh, sure. Well, one is that it's connected with elephant conservation that they can do. So, uh, I'll, I'll think of a couple of them. But one is that if somebody's, you know, I don't know, I'm sure you guys have done this. I don't, I can't tell you how many times somebody says, I love elephants. You know, I'd love to do something for them, but what can I do? I live in, you know, Colorado. I live in Florida, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And one of the best things you can do to save especially Asian elephants is to make sure that you're not using any food with palm oil in it. That's, yeah. that's easy. You know, it's the, it is the number one destroyer of Asian elephant, rhino, orangutan, wildcat habitat, period. It's even more, more damaging, uh, that more destructive than mining. Wow. Jeez. Is it, is it through that's deforestation pretty much to make room for the agriculture? They do. They literally napalm it, uh, hundreds of sections of land. They burn it to the ground and every creature in it's burned alive. Then they plant rows of palm trees and they put high voltage fences around it so it electrocutes any animals that come around the area. And they also <laughs> even poison them outside that periphery. But and then Holy you know, it's just, we don't you know we don't need the oil. We can we have all sorts of wonderful oils that we produce here in the states that is just that are those are oils are just as good as palm oil and whatever it is. Yeah. But it's it's almost ubiquitous in our our product lines now, and so we just have to look for it. You know. Yeah. Uh, Use birds, bees instead of chapstick, or you know this this power bar than this one. Don't eat Nutella. It's funny you say that. <laughs> <laughs> I got it on stock here in Colorado. I need it. <laughs> yeah, I'll just more when you run out. <laughs> but, you know, it's really what's really good about it is that if you know you, you can be in the grocery store, whatever grocery store it is, and if you look at like, oh, I love this, and you turn it to see palm oil. It's, there's going to be a competitor that's just as tasty or just as nutritious that doesn't have it. It just takes two seconds, you know, to right. that's, that's the sustainability tip for the globe would be, would be something like that. And then just for the, uh, like for individual behavior is the, and so everyone's different, you know, is simply say, think of, think of one thing that you can do that really, it's, it's really not that difficult to do that you can implement. That has that has that's about sustainability, mm-hmm. and so you can think about water, food, energy, or commerce. Like, what can you do to reduce your carbon footprint? You know, it's really easy. Easy. I mean, we've, a lot of people do this meatless Mondays. Mm-hmm. You know, just, yeah. just take, taking animal protein out of your diet in just one day has a remarkable uh, reduction in carbon. You know, something simple like that. Uh, <laughs> there's a joke about you know, never again. Take a plastic bag when you have the reusable bags in your car or on your bike. Mm-hmm. You just go back and get them or right. whatever. Yeah, so there's so many funny stories about this. Somebody said, I have 20 reusable bags <laughs> in my car. Why is I keep forgetting them? Well, just promise yourself that you won't do that again. You'll turn around and go right back out to your car or whatever and go get you know, those bags. Simple things like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Help so much. But, uh, and then you know, for water, you can, you can literally uh, plant sustainable landscapes that require very little water. Right, keep things native, right, is one of the best ways. Sure. You know, uh, there's a, there's a, always a discussion about, well, shouldn't we always use uh, organic products and like, well, produce and, or food in general? So, well, you know, of course, that's better because they're not laced with carcinogens. However, if we want to think about sustainability overall, can, what about a local farmer? So maybe they do spray seven dust on their tomatoes or something like that. It, you know, that's not great. But, or we buy uh, we buy tomatoes from uh, you know South America or something that are organic, but you know the carbon footprint, the amount of contaminants that's put into the environment to get those tomatoes here alone oh, is crazy. crazy. Yeah. yeah. Those things, you know, just looking at, like you said, stay local, get things at the farmers market when you can. That that, that has a tremendous positive impact on the, on commerce, reduction of water, you know, uh, uh, increase of food democracy. Right. You know, it's, yeah. That's what I've loved. In Colorado, actually, they put a big, like, every every supermarket here, um, even, I guess, the, like, Winn-Dixie equivalent puts a big emphasis on what's local, and they have basically, like, a heart that's in, with the Colorado flag, kind of, that says, I'm local on everything. So you'll see things even from, like, pasta, like, can or jarred pasta sauces that, that are, are, you know, produced in Colorado and sourced from Colorado. 
So it's all about, yeah, just making things easy for people to know what, what's local in their supermarket and what's not. Let's, let's the consumer make the choice. There's very few people that'll reach for a, a jar of pasta sauce, you know, in, in, in Boulder, for example, and say, I'm going to make sure that I take the one that's made in, you know, uh, where Africa. <laughs> right, right, yeah. I hear they have the best sauce there. <laughs> yeah. Ships very well. Make it easy, yeah. <clears throat> and then make decisions. Yeah. Sweet. Were there any uh, other ones that we had left? Uh, what is the most sustainable behavior you implement in your life? Like uh, taking short showers or something like that? See, I mean, short shower is definitely one. Uh, a walk, you know, uh, so zero skate. You know, I have I have two butterfly and hummingbird gardens there. They're all na- mostly native plants, so they require not much not much additional water. Of course, we're getting so much rain now; it's crazy. But but in that and, and riding my bike you know, to and from campus or wherever I go, you know, walking to the store, buying it, you know, local produce. Those are just basic things. Uh, yeah, use use as little water as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, to go with that, what's the most wasteful thing you do as well? Most wasteful thing that I do. <laughs> Live uh, in America. <laughs> <laughs> Live in a place and, and have a cat that where I have to have the air conditioner on and the ceiling fan, you know, to <laughs> get her hair so long. But no, I, you know, I would think the most wasteful thing that I do is just that I... I do use because I control the environment. The you know I have an HVAC system and I have a refrigerator. Those are all things that use quite a bit of energy, even though I try to minimize that. That's probably that. Uh, you know, and I drive an automobile. I drive. I do not drive it much, but I have an automobile that burns you know gasoline. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a five five hundred. Doesn't use a lot of it, but it still burns gasoline. That's the thing is is just to get to these other sources. Uh, you know. That's, oh, yeah. Better, better. Right, yes. You know, like I'm going to work at, I'm working at now to get an electric car, that kind of thing. That that would be one big hit that I'm doing that I can reduce. Yeah, nice. Yeah, it's like having a car is almost unavoidable in America, depending on how your town is set up, really. Right. Like if you you live in a city center and can walk to your work and bike to your work and walk to get groceries, that's, that's fantastic. But, you know, Gainesville can be pretty spread out if you're trying to get across town. For sure, yeah. That's yeah. why you know I've, I've situated myself uh, always. I've had since I've been here pretty for the most part. Cause the first few years I wasn't, but I live downtown, so I can ride or right. walk. Or, yeah. Nice. Sweet. Yeah. Is that location is important to sustainability too? Just like we're talking, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Someone say, well, I could buy a, a larger lot and a bigger house if I live, you know, forty-five minutes or an hour away from where I work. Well, you know. Uh, Fuel is going to be $10 a gallon pretty soon when you can get it. It's very stressful. There's a lot of research that shows that being removed that far removed from your work and also spending so much time in a vehicle where you could be with your family or friends or more productive or something like that is actually psychologically damaging. Hmm. So, you know, finding a place to live that's conducive to uh, less of a carbon impact can also be better for us psychologically. Yeah, that makes sense. Themselves, yeah. Yeah, I'm on. I think I'm on the the total opposite end. We're working remotely. I I get damaged psychologically by being alone too much. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's all. I, I think that's all really great stuff that people can like. The best thing you said, I that I think for an average person is pick pick the one thing that that you can change in your life and start there. Um, doesn't have to be huge. Doesn't have to you know, change everything you think or do about the way you've lived your life for the last however many years, but pick that one thing and, and be, be diligent about it and then yeah. work from there. Yeah. And so research shows that if somebody uh, takes an, an action on something, whether we they think about anything is actually about sustainability, you know, but will they just take some action where they, they promise that they will not buy any plastic containers or they'll no longer use plastic water bottles or something very basic like that. What happens is that one success that to us seems kind of nominal, that one success actually uh, it leads to other, other efforts and other successes that are more mm. complicated to take more effort. We, right. you know, uh, we need to be able to build on things that we all have different ways of gradually doing. Some of us can start at a much larger, more complex task and move up with it because we understand it, but if we don't, 
start small and it gets big and it makes a huge difference. Yeah. 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 Um, well, yeah, thank you for your time. I, again, yeah. really thank appreciate so it. Yeah. Okay. It's great talking with you guys. Hopefully, uh, we'll, we'll get some, some interest and some people inspired because, uh, one of the points that you got back to is you have to try, you have to do something. Like you said, you started knowing nothing about elephants except that you liked them and, and you work from there and, you know, there's lots of people out there that I feel like have similar passions. So hopefully they'll realize it's, it's possible to, you know, just take those first steps and, you know, don't be afraid to, to put your name out there. Even if you seem like a, you know, crazy person. <laughs> <clears throat> Absolutely, you know, and be optimistic. It's number one is you know yeah. to, to be kind to yourself helps us be kind to each other. Be optimistic. Yeah. You know because optimism fuels success, creativity, and success. Pessimism does not. It's pessimism is almost an assurance that we'll we'll be successful. Yeah. Yeah, that's something I need to get better about for sure. <laughs> Don't um. make the paper fall off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, yeah, I guess that, that, that wraps okay. it up. So thanks again, Ron. And uh, remember to... <laughs> and protect your wild. Special thanks to my good friend Valleys for our incredible theme song. If you want to check him out, go to Spotify or SoundCloud and type in V-A-L-L-E-Y-Z. 